When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Carrie Russell stars as a woman traveling to a Jane Austen theme park in search of the perfect gentleman in Austenland, available now on demand. Douglas Booth and Haley Steinfeld are Romeo and Juliet, a pair of star-crossed youths who fall for each other in spite of their feuding families. Watch it on demand starting February 18th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Coming up on the show, after a day of thunder and a Talladega night, I put Matt into the wall as we review Ron Howard's racing movie, Rush. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered around a common theme. And inspired by Rush, all of our conversations on this episode will be scored on a complex, multi-pronged point system. And at the end of the show, we'll reveal the winner who will receive the most coveted trophy in all of online audio programming, the 2014 Movies on Demand Podcast Cup. Allison, you are going down. I'm ready to die trying. (laughs) (laughs) In the meantime, we will recommend some other movies like Rush about heated rivalries. Uh, But first up, of course, is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand. Allison, what are our picks this week? Well, first up, we have Wajda, which is available on demand on February 11th, so probably by the time you hear this. Written and directed by Haifa Al-Mansur, it is the first feature shot entirely in Saudi Arabia, the first feature made by a female Saudi, Saudi director, and the first feature submitted for Oscar consideration by Saudi Arabia. So a lot of firsts there, which already makes it a kind of socially important film, not to mention one that offers a look at daily life in Saudi Arabia that you very seldom get to see on screen. So interesting from that perspective, it's also a very moving film that manages to convey the experience and kind of the limitations put on life uh, for the women in Saudi Arabia without being overtly political, which I think is kind of 
in the vein of many films that come out of particular Middle Eastern countries where they're, they are both protests and very matter of fact portraits of life at the same time. And uh, this film is set in the suburbs of Riyadh, where the title character, who's a 10 year old girl, is longing for a green bicycle. Uh, that's all she wants to be able to uh, keep up with her best friend, who is a boy. Uh, despite the fact that such a thing, it's kind of, it's not really forbidden, but it's, it's not something that she's supposed to want. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, you know, you see both the fact that she's on the cusp of womanhood and that she's not quite fitting in. And then you also see the experiences of her mother, who is dealing with the fact that her husband may soon take a second wife because she has not given him a son. Mm. So uh, she also, you know, like women in Saudi Arabia, she's not allowed to drive. So she has to kind of depend on a driver. And then you see also just the kind of day-to-day -day of like the, um, what, you know, going outside and how you have to dress to go outside versus indoor spaces and kind of uh, gender separation. Right. It's, uh, it is a really complicated story told from a very simple perspective of a child. And I think it does that quite well and has a really nice lead performance from, that's not overly cute, uh, that, but is completely wrenching at points. Um, so it's a, it's a really, it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, effective film. And it's also one that I think is really interesting from just a purely like a pure perspective of allowing a viewpoint into a society that you just don't get to see very often. For both of those reasons, I would recommend it. That's Wajda. And it is available on demand on February 11th. I'm sorry I missed that movie. That's, well, that's right at the top of my list of movies from last year that I really wanted to see and didn't. And I, I don't think you mentioned the director is a woman. But yes. part of what goes with being a female director is she couldn't direct the scenes on the street. because Again, because of all those things you were talking about in terms of the role of women in Saudi Arabian society and the restrictive... Uh, rules in place that she so she was directing I from think a van. from a van yes. and sort of like on remote like sort of like walkie-talkie yeah, essentially because the right crew was also I think gender separated right and so uh you know the complications Cra that come with that crazy I guess it's probably unfair to give movies like you know bonus points for things like that <laughs> that's sort of like yeah and that's sort of outside the yeah. frame but still that's I mean that's amazing to do something to to believe so strongly to make something in, in spite of those uh, restrictions I think is fantastic so I'm dying to see that one yeah and you know I think it was a surprise to a lot of people that it wasn't it didn't get the Oscar nomination mm. but uh, you know who can tell with that category yeah it's, so. it's usually a mess okay what else what else we have this week well we have two more one is Knights of Badassdom, which is available also on February 11th. It's also from Saudi Arabia. Also, yes, another rare film. Yes. Um, all about live-action role-playing, which uh, <laughs> apparently very big in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. uh, directed by Joe Lynch. This has been a kind of favorite of the genre fans that have managed to see it so far. It had like a kind of short festival run. But it is about a group of live action role players who, in the course of their LARPing, accidentally conjure a real demon and then have to defeat it. Um, and besides, you know, Joe Lynch's got he's been kind of working or in around in the genre world for a long time. It's got a great nerdy cast, including Peter Dinklage, Steve Zahn, Ryan Quantin from True Blood, Summer Glau, Jimmy Simpson and Danny Pudi from Community. So, uh, you know. It's a pretty solid cast there, and how can you go wrong with uh, LARPing? <laughs> so so uh, that is going to be available. I mean, as a life choice or as a movie? All, all things. Oh, okay. Think, probably. Um, so that is available on February 11th. 
on February 14th is Adult World, which is directed by Scott Coffey, who previously made the movie Ellie Parker, which is uh, starring Naomi Watts and was kind of shot on the fly about life as an actress in L.A. That's actually a really interesting movie. This one stars Emma Roberts as a recent college grad who, you know, wants to be a great poet, though that's not a terribly feasible career choice, which is how she ends up instead working at an adult bookstore. Um, ah. So, and she also meets one of her favorite pil- uh, favorite poets, whose name is Rat Billings, and who is played by John Cusack, and uh, you know tries to kind of find her way into his life somehow, despite the fact that you know, he is also as a as a poet, kind of crabby and all of those things. That's the adult world, and it is available on demand on February fourteenth. <laughs> shots on this episode rivalry movies movies about rivalries allison is there anything you want to say in a general sense before we get to our picks i think that the qualities i tend to really like in movies about rivalries are ones in which the rivals like each other at a bit or like kind of grudgingly like each other or at least that rivalry involves the other person even if they're despised basically being the center of their lives you Mm, know the rivalry of begrudging respect right or even just like that there is uh that the two people are connected even if they loathe each other right and i think that comes through a bit in rush which we can definitely at the end you know which we can talk about but that uh that's a really interesting idea to me that there's something there's like a deep connection there, even in you're wanting to maybe destroy this person, mm. that there's almost a fondness. Mm. Uh, and that's that's something I tend to like in my rivalry movies. Because you, as a person who has a lot of rivals professionally, find yourself in positions where you're begrudgingly respecting those rivals or right. feeling like while you can't vowing, live without them. While, while vowing, vowing to destroy, destroy them, them yes. all the time. Yes. Yeah, I'm you, always vowing to destroy people. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of an annoying habit. Yeah, it's not one it. of your more positive traits. I know, it's but... a kind of estranges <laughs> But, it's you know, kind of surprising you haven't bowed to destroy me yet after well, all this time. Maybe you just haven't been around for it. Oh, good point. Yeah. Good point. I, yeah. I mean, I was thinking of things like uh, Top Gun, say, you know, mm. where you have this rivalry, which is available for rent. We've talked about it on the podcast mm. before. But, you know, you have this rivalry. And then, of course, at the end, it ends with uh, a bro hug. Yes. And you can be my wingman anytime. Yes. You know, or the Rocky movies, mm. you know, where this rivalry turns into a friendship or... You know, even uh, if it doesn't turn into a friendship, that that kind of acknowledgement that there is some kind of, like the prestige, say, yes. which is a film that, where it does not turn into a friendship at all. No, but there, there, these two characters have a kind of all-consuming kind of obsession with one another, mm-hmm. and also, in a way, they're the only two people who can understand each other. Right, right, right. And I think that there's something 
very interesting about that dynamic. Yeah. But how about you? I just think it's interesting looking at the list of rivalry movies. You know, how many other movies, the typical structure of other movies, you know, 95% of them are all good guy, bad guy, hero versus villain, David versus Goliath, you know, and it makes it very clear that there's someone who's supposed to win and that we're supposed to want to win, and there's someone who's supposed to lose and that we're supposed to want them to lose. And that can be satisfying to watch, but I think what's interesting about rivalry movies and what makes them appealing is that in a lot of cases, including some of the ones you just mentioned, we don't know who we're supposed to root for. And it can be a case of two good guys, a good guy and another good guy, or the prestige might even qualify as like a bad guy and a bad guy. Right. Like they're they're both, both extremely difficult people. Right. They're both kind of scuzzy. So like we don't know really who to root for or who we want to win. And I think that can be uh, very, very interesting dramatically. Another ex- good example is the recent MMA fight movie Warrior, where the whole movie is about two brothers, both of whom are you know, they're fairly decent guys and they both really need the money and they need to win just for themselves. They've had these tough lives and the whole movie builds to them competing in this MMA tournament. And we know from the first scene that the last scene of the movie is going to be their fight. Right. But we don't know who's going to win and we don't even really know who we want to win. And I think that's very interesting. And that creates a very interesting tension in the viewer, you know, because as opposed to a, like a Rocky movie where, generally speaking, we want Rocky to win. I guess if you're a perverse person <laughs> or you're a huge fan of Carl Weathers, you really want Apollo to win. But generally speaking, most people want Rocky to win, right? Oh, you know, that's the guy who we're supposed to be rooting for. And like Rocky III, we, we, you don't really root for Mr. T. You know, he's the bad guy, pretty clearly. Rocky's the good guy. In Warrior, though... You know, you don't know should I who I should who should I root for, and I, I I like that. I think that's a fun dynamic to play off of, and I'm kind of surprised when I thought about it that there aren't more. I mean, there are plenty of rivalry movies, but I feel like it's something that I wouldn't mind seeing more of. Less traditional good guy bad guy things to me is is a good it's a good thing to aspire to. Agreed, and it also creates uh, it makes it more interesting in terms of treatments of say the personal lives of the characters because mm-hmm. in a lot of ways you have people who are consumed by something else other than say their love interest or something you know which i think it makes those stories slightly more off kilter and more unusual because someone's the movie's focused and this character's focus is on this competition or this rivalry mm-hmm. or whatever which kind of has to shape things differently which I, I really like. Yeah. All right. So should we get to our picks? Let's go ahead. Do you want to go first? Um, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, my first pick, actually, both of my picks this week are, uh, they're multi-available. They're, they're, they can go either way. So they both count as my streaming and my rentable picks. This first one is streaming on Crackle and rentable on Apple, Google Play, and YouTube. And it's Talladega Nights from 2006. It's a racing movie and a rivalry movie. Very nice. I've covered all my bases this week. Uh, I enjoyed this movie a lot when it came out. I've watched it a fair number of times since then. And if you just want to laugh, it's a very funny movie. I think it's one of uh, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's funnier films. But uh, watching it again this week, I realized it's a little bit more of a of a critique uh, than I realized of Heartland America, of quote-unquote traditional American values. Uh, the whole storyline about Ricky Bobby, the Will Ferrell character, he's this cocky and uh, dumb and go-for-broke NASCAR driver, is is about his belief that if you're not first, you're last. And I, I, it kind of maybe I'm just as dumb as Ricky Bobby is, but it, it took me all this time to realize that it's you know very, uh, very much a sort of commentary on American 
uh, foreign policy and also like America's image of itself. That America is America is the best. America is number one. Nobody is as good as us, you know. And the whole conflict, the whole rivalry in this in this movie. Although I guess there's, I suppose now that I think about it, there's maybe two rivalries. But the the antagonistic rivalry with Ricky Bobby's uh, sort of opponent is is him with Jean Girard, played by Sacha Baron Cohen, who's a French Formula Un driver, as he puts it. And he is everything that Ricky Bobby hates, right? He likes jazz and crepes, and his sponsor is Perrier. And, you know, so, uh, you know, there's this sort of, like, conflict between the two of them. But then not to spoil the end of the movie, if you haven't seen it, but part of the end of the movie is this very lengthy kiss between Will Ferrell and Sacha Baron Cohen. And uh, it doesn't really have a lot to do with the plot, but I think the idea uh, for Will Ferrell and Adam McKay of having two men make out at a NASCAR track in front of a clear – like a huge crowd of hundreds, maybe 100,000 NASCAR fans was like too irresistible to, to, to them. They, they couldn't resist doing it, so there, there they are. And I think it's sort of like shoving in, in the audience's face kind of some of these ideas, which I, I like. All right, you let go of me, you Formula One jazz nut job. Like the frightened baby chipmunk. You are scared by anything that is different. I will let you go, Ricky. But first, I want you to say... I love crepes. Don't you say it, Ricky. These colors don't run. I'm not going to say it. Good. The, The other thing I sort of thought about as I was watching it was how many Will Ferrell comedies are about rivalries. Uh, you think about it, a lot of his movies, Anchorman, where he's fighting with Veronica Corningstone for the anchor desk, right? Step Brothers, where he and John C. Riley, who's also in uh, Talladega Nights and steals every scene he's in, they're sort of fighting over their parents' affections. They don't like each other because they were like only children, and now in this bizarre, uh, surreal relationship, they now have to be stepbrothers. Uh, the Campaign, he's fighting for a Congress seat with Zach Galifianakis. Blades of Glory was about figure skating. And now Anchorman 2, he's fighting with a rival at the first 24-hour cable news network with uh, Jack Lime, played by James Marsden. And thinking about it and wondering why are, has he made so many, I think that that format, the rivalry movie, is well-suited to his style of improv comedy. I think it encourages the sort of like – Almost like a competition on the set, right? To try it because they're they're whole they're, the whole time they're just riffing, right? They're, there's a script, but basically Will Ferrell's movies, for a large part, they're made on the set you know, in riffing and making up ideas. And I think that environment gets kind of competitive. I bet who can come up with the funniest line, who can win, who can have the best line. And I think when you have characters who are sort of rivals who are trying to beat each other on screen, I think that atmosphere and that idea feeds into the comedy. And the comedy then feeds into the the story, and I think in a very uh, effective way. So I just thought that was interesting. I hadn't thought about that before, uh, but I think that that's something that's there. And I think maybe there's something about the style of improv, improv comedy that lends itself to a rivalry movie like The Great Talladega Nights. So uh, the film is streaming on Crackle, and you can rent it on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. So for my two picks, uh, because I was thinking about the idea of rivalries that have a basis of some kind of mutual grudging respect or all of that. Yes. I started thinking about uh, films that are about rivalries that kind of grow out of the other direction, which is that films are about friendships that are also marked by rivalry, Mm -hmm. which I think is a fairly common thing that happens as well. So, so both of my picks kind of 
speak to that. The first one is Reprise, which is currently streaming on Netflix. This is a 2006 film directed by Joachim Trier, who went on to direct Oslo August 31st, which I think you liked, Matt, right? Yes, definitely. So it's, it's a Norwegian film. This is a film he did before them. It's a Norwegian film about two young men, Philip and Eric, who are 23-year-old aspiring authors, and it's about their respective paths in the literary world. And they're good friends, but there are also aspects of rivalry throughout their relationship, especially when Philip's first novel is published and Eric's is rejected. Um, Philip happens to have mental health issues that he struggles with. Very quickly into the film, he has a breakdown. And the film doesn't romanticize his struggle, but it manages to show how Eric, in certain ways, romanticizes it himself. Har du fått tænkt lidt på titterne nu? Ja, jeg har tænkt lidt på det. Jeg synes det er bra. Ja. Jeg synes plus på bare er en god titel også. Synes du ikke det? Because the film is filled with ideas that you have, especially when you're like in your early 20s and have very grand ideas about wanting to change the world with your art. Mm. Ideas about where proper art comes from, you know, about coming from suffering or coming from madness or coming from having had a terrible hard life. Uh, that, you know, Eric is a, fa- it's a, is a nice boy who comes from a, you know, a seemingly stable home and is in a relationship with a nice girl. And that there is almost a sense that he covets the idea of a mental struggle, you know, whereas when we see the story from uh, Philip's perspective, there's no, there's nothing to be coveted there. His life is, you know, extremely difficult in terms of being consumed with this, this kind of downward spiral at a certain point that starts off with uh, his relation, his romantic relationship. So I, I think the film handles that, really well it's a great film and it handles the complexity of those ideas and then in general the ideas of being young and having you know being able to make great vows about how you should never be in a like the group these group of guy friends say you know one of them says you should never be in a long-term relationship because then you end up domesticated and boring and you don't listen to music enough and you have dinner parties and you know it just destroys you as an interesting person and then of course this person ends up in a relationship himself very happily then have dinner parties uh but just it's a great portrayal of those years in in life and kind of how they 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 give way to you know, people finding their careers and finding their domestic situations. It's very French New Wave influenced, but in a way that's just very kind of just very free. And I I thought that the layers between the main friendship, like the layers in which they are close and then they pull apart and in which the power slightly shifts without either of them ever really without there being much of a blow up fight ever or like a major schism or it's just so well done. It's a really good film. Uh, it's one that I would highly recommend. Reprise. It is currently streaming on Netflix. Okay. So my next pick, this movie is available everywhere. You can rent it on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, or YouTube. Or you can stream it on Netflix or Hulu+. Plus. So you could watch it simultaneously on eight different platforms if you so choose. And uh, like Talladega Nights, it's a movie that kind of, you know, it's a superficial comedy. But I think it's got more going on beneath the surface than it might initially appear. And that's The Trip from 2010, directed by Michael Winterbottom. 
And primarily here, I think we're talking about a very honest and fairly brutal portrait of male neuroses and inadequacies. And as one of the planet's leading experts, Allison, on male neuroses and inadequacies, I can say without hesitation that this is one of the finest films I've ever seen on that subject. Uh, you know, again, it looks very simple. It's British actors Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon playing themselves, taking this a culinary trip through northern England. They're visiting all the region's best restaurants, and they're supposed to be, like, writing a magazine piece. And Coogan was initially supposed to go on the trip with his girlfriend, but they've broken up, so he sort of reluctantly takes Bryden along to keep him company. And he's both his friend but also kind of his rival, and the, uh, that's where the rivalry comes from. Uh, the movie doesn't seem to have a lot of a plot. It's really just these two guys kind of occupying themselves on long car rides and walks through this beautiful northern England countryside and and uh, having meals together, making a lot of jokes, doing a lot of impressions of, of famous people. If you're a fan of impressions, there's lots of that in this movie, which are very funny. Um, but the sort of wandering nature of the film and the lack of a, you know, sort of like defining – uh, like narrative drive, I think it's the perfect structure for the film because it's about a, this guy played by Steve Coogan who is essentially lost. He's wandering. He has lost his girlfriend. His career is sort of in a mess. He can't quite decide what he wants to do. Should he go to America and make some, you know, kind of like sellout TV show uh, for the next seven years just to make a lot of money? Does he? Should he stay in England and be near? He has a son. Should he, you know, stay near the son? And it's sort of like he's he's totally lost. He doesn't know what to do with himself. So the the fact that the movie is kind of wandering just mirrors that perfectly. Uh, a lot of the movies that are rivalry movies, including uh, I think all the ones we've talked about so far, are generally about how competition sort of like makes people stronger and better or at least more intense. You know, it, it raises the level of their – Whatever they're competing with, you know, even in a movie like Prestige where it makes the people kind of worse in a sense like morally, it makes them better magicians, right? That they're like this compete to be the best. But there's another side to competition, which is basically like if you don't have something worthwhile to compete about, if you don't have something to like get better in, it kind of does the opposite. It just makes you petty and smaller and more bitter. And I think that's the kind of rivalry you see in, in the trip. I mean, there's a song that comes up quite a few times in the film, and it's ABBA's The Winner Takes It All. And I don't think that song is a random choice. I think that the idea of winning is crucial to the movie. Uh, and also the idea of like how like it's how look at how silly these guys are for wanting to win at like at one point they're competing over who can sing more octaves you know do re mi fa sol la ti do that kind of thing it's just like and you know there's another great scene where uh, the the whole movie Steve Coogan is sort of like uh, insulting Rob Brydon's abilities, just like his impressions. It's just like, you know, in you're... Everything. Gr- yeah. Insults him in everything, basically. Right, but but specifically, like, his impressions and why are you doing that? You're a grown man. You don't even do it that good. And then there's a scene where we watch him alone in his, like, bathroom, like, sort of, like, trying to master the, like, the ultimate Brydon impression, which is, like, the little man in a box, this thing that he does that no one else does. You know, it's it's not like Michael Caine where everyone does an impression. And, and I think that... I don't know. It just it just gets to the heart of that 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 idea. You know, like friendships, even good friendships can come with rivalries. Like we love our friends, we want them to succeed, but I I think if we're being totally honest, which we're not always, like I think we kind of want people, our friends, to like succeed, but not succeed more than us. Like that drives us crazy, right? Or maybe that's just me, and I'm a horrible person, <laughs> and that's why I love the trip. But I think that there's something about that that's in this movie that feels very real to me. This, all this was formed in the last ice age about 10,000 years ago. Incredible, isn't it? How far are we going to go? 
a little bit further. Because it's late. I know. Well, as you can see, the sun is now the other know, side of the. Hello. It's okay. Hello. Hello. Hi. Human history's been <clears throat> recorded for uh, what three thousand years, and yet, you know, we're, we're right now we're in a warm period. But there's going to be another ice age very soon. Right. In about say well, in a few thousand years, but that's the, you know, that's, that's 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 a blink of an eye. The, the, the rock, the rocks here, were formed 400 million years ago. 400 million years ago. It's like the, where, where we are now. This used to, this was a huge volcanic caldera. This was a volcanic lake, a molten volcano, and it was on a landmass called Avalonia that drifted from the South Pole all the way to where we are now over sort of hundreds of million years. We shouldn't probably go much further just because of the light. And I love – I also love the, the Steve Coogan character in this, that, that he's not playing himself as this – you know, like the, when you play yourself in a movie, it's always the broad, you know, like doing drugs, you know, like the crazy stereotype. And here it's a, such a sad performance. It's such a like sort of like mean and, – and, and he doesn't come off very well. He's like – he misses his girlfriend, but he's cheating on her constantly and – It's also like – when, He's so when it petty. comes down to it, the only person he has to ask is this person who's only his sort of friend. Right, that he doesn't trip, like. Right. He doesn't like very much, and but that's that we the clearly, person he can bring. But that we also clearly sense that he's incredibly jealous of him yeah. and what he has, yeah. which is like a stable home life and a family. And So, I don't know. It, it, it is a very funny movie, and it doesn't have like a super you know strong plot, but just watching it again, and I've seen it a few times, watching it again today, earlier this morning, I was really kind of blown away by how good it is and how smart it is. And uh, if you haven't seen it, strongly recommend you check it out. There's a sequel coming later this year called The Trip to Italy. I could not be more excited to see that. So this is The Trip. Uh, it's available on Netflix, Hulu, uh, or Amazon, or iTunes, or Google Play, or YouTube. Yeah. Uh, Steve Coogan does play himself really well. So well. He's so done well. it in, in, like, Tristram Shandy. Tristram Shandy, yeah. He, in other things. And he... Uh, seemingly has no vanity when no. it comes to playing himself. No, it's not at quite all. quite amazing. So for my second pick, uh, it is available for rent on iTunes, Voodoo, Redbox, and Sony. And it is Last Days of Disco, which is also a film in which two, uh, there seems to be a friendship that's largely predicated on one-upsmanship. So one-upsmanship. We're not even just that one person, like, kind of constantly grinding the other person down, mm -hmm. uh, even though the other person is ultimately more stable and more successful in the end. Mm. It is written and directed by Whit Stillman, and I think maybe my favorite of his movies, and stars Chloe Sevigny and Kate Beckinsale as Alice Kinnan and Charlotte Pingris, two recent Hampshire College graduates who are assistants in the book publishing business and eventual roommates. And they don't seem to have been very good friends in college. In fact, the more you hear about how they were in college, the more it seems like uh, actually, Charlotte was uh, constantly undermining her and feeding, uh, saying terrible things about Alice. But due to like social convenience, they kind of latch up. Um, I, I, it's a particularly funny performance from Kate Beckinsale. Charlotte is prone to just saying terrible things in the name of like advice to to Alice. Things like, maybe in physical terms, I'm a little cuter than you, but you should be much more popular than I am. Or uh, admitting at a certain point, when guys wanted to ask, like in college, when guys wanted to ask you out, I talked them out of it. <laughs> or at another point, when uh, Alice refuses a cocktail, she says, why are you not drinking? <gasps> you have VD in front of a large group of people. <laughs> it is like an amazingly catty 
performance in the guise of saying things for the benefit of someone. Mm-hmm. And it's it's remarkably funny. Saturday, I took my niece, who's seven, to see the Disney movie, Lady and the Tramp. She loved it. It was so cute. I'm beginning to fall in love with the whole idea of having kids. I hate that movie. What? So tacky. Not to mention depressing. This sweet movie about cute cartoon dogs you found depressing? There is something depressing about it, and it's not really about dogs. Except for some superficial bow-wow stuff at the start. The dogs all represent human types, which is where it gets into real trouble. <clears throat> Lady, the ostensible protagonist, is a fluffy blonde cocker spaniel with absolutely nothing on her brain. She's great-looking, but let's be honest, incredibly insipid. Tramp, the love interest, is a smarmy braggart of the most obnoxious kind, an oily jailbird out for a piece of tail or whatever you can get. And uh, I really like that despite the amount of times in which it seems like uh, Alice should pull away, she kind of keeps coming back, even when uh, even when Charlotte basically starts dating like one of the guys that Alice liked against all rules of you know girl uh, girl code, it, she kind of keeps coming back. Uh, but she keep, she kind of gradually comes into her own, both professionally and personally, and kind of manages to pull away from the controlling things that that Charlotte does. And it, this happens so nicely over the course of the film that uh, where it begins and where it ends uh, is just very, is pretty wonderful. Uh, and, the, you know, this is a film in general that's very enjoyable. It's got a great monologue about how disco will never die. It's got some uh, great performances from Chris Eigman, who's, uh, you know, uh, one of Whit Stillman's regular players. And it's uh, it has a, a particularly fantastic credit sequence. So it's it's an enjoyable movie overall. But it is a really funny portrayal of a, a like a kind of close rivalry in the guise of friendship and of someone kind of eventually realizing that this is not the friendship that she would want. So that is Last Days of Disco. It is available for rent on iTunes, Vudu, Redbox, and Sony. Hi, Francis. How's it going so far? It's fine. Just got a little problem with an Austrian rat and his team of Italian cheats who've destroyed my car. What are you talking about? Talking about the race in Spain that I won. Yeah, in a car, which is not legal. Five eighths of an inch too wide. You know that doesn't have the slightest effect on speed. But you complained and your team of lawyers leaned on the authorities. Now we've had to rebuild the car and it's become a monster. At least it's a legal monster. So you've had to resort to cheating. You're driving an illegal car and call me the cheat? It's pathetic. Rules are rules. Yes. And rats are rats. Thank you. Thank you. Now it's time for our listener's choice review, which quite appropriately, given the eventual winner, was a neck and neck race between two candidates that came down to a photo finish. The clear loser, though, was Lee Daniels, the butler, which barely got off the starting line before it had a complete and total engine failure and had to retire from the race. It wound up with just 8% of the vote, which means it came down to a knockdown dragout fight between the Lone Ranger and Rush, and at the finish line, by a nose. Yeah, it was close. It was Rush with 46.2% of the vote to the Lone Ranger's 45% of the vote. It was the most entered Listener's Choice poll to date, and one of the closest we've ever had, so thanks everyone for voting. Rush tells the true story of the Canadian rock band featuring Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart. Uh, their greatest hits include Limelight, The Spirit of the... What's that now? It's not about the Canadian band Rush? 
Well, why the hell did I spend the last two weeks listening to prog rock? This is ridiculous. <laughs> all right. You would have done that anyway. Uh, all right. I would have. But apparently Rush is actually the true story of the rivalry between Formula Uno drivers James Hunt and Nicky Lauda through the early 1970s, from their earliest days rising through the ranks to their battle for the championship cup during the 1976 season. Chris Hemsworth and Daniel Bruhl star as Hunt and Lauda, respectively, and the film was directed by Ron Howard, who's one of the most successful, though not necessarily the most acclaimed or distinctive Hollywood directors of the last 25 years. Uh, he has made many fine films, including Splash, A Beautiful Mind, Apollo 13, and one of my personal favorites, The Paper. But I don't know that if pressed, I could describe a quote-unquote Ron Howard film. So, Allison, my first question to you is, how would you describe a Ron Howard film? And how does Rush huh. fit into all those other films? I would say that what I, I kind of my ideas about it are maybe a combination of some very just like very, you know, workable Hollywood, just general, you know, like uh, he tends to tell a lot of very Hollywood stories. Mm -hmm. And then on the kind of other side of it would be like the sort of prestige pick, the um, the ones that are based on a true story like this one, but uh, that, you know, tend to have like a bit of sheen of importance to them. And uh, that's a, probably about as specific as I can get. I don't think that he has a particular visual style mm. that has ever stood out to me as distinctive. Right. He's obviously, a, he, you know, can create very successful movies. That's It's worked out for him very well. Mm -hmm. What I thought worked really well in Rush is that it, melded a lot of those prestige impulses with more just kind of quick moving Hollywood ones in a way that light, you know, this is, this, this was a really quick paced film. It, it moved along so nicely. It didn't get bogged down in a lot of the, even like the kind of personal details I think were handled in a, with a very light touch, you know, mm -hmm. that there was a lot of focus on the actual rivalry in a way that I think sometimes other other based on a true story type films of this caliber, you know, they tend to be like, and now let's go see how the home life is or let's mm -hmm. go see. Uh, this really gave the focus to the racetrack and to how these two affected one another. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the maybe the shifts between these two? Did you feel like one was the main character? I thought that uh, pretty clearly uh, Daniel Bruhl's character, Nicky Lauda, was the main character. Is that would you agree or disagree? I think so. I, I mean, he gets to say he gets to introduce the film and get the final word. He, I, just, I mean, he's the one too who has sort of the more uh, maybe not exciting, but like dramatic arc in terms of what happens to him. Really, is you know he has this over the course of these, the the movie, he has some pretty intense struggles to overcome. At least more in my mind than than uh, James Hunt did. At least as I saw it. Yeah, but I liked that neither of them fit into the traditional heroic category. No, you know? no, no, no. Like, uh, you know, this is a, the film has a great use of Chris Hemsworth as a movie star. And I think, mm. you know, as this character is basically a movie star, he's, he's larger than life. Yes. And when he gets that entrance kind of strolling into the hospital, like bleeding and right. you know, beautiful and everyone stops to look, I thought it was like, it was particularly great, but also a great place to start as uh, he becomes maybe less easily likable of a character as he goes along. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, you know, for Nicky Lauda's arc, we go the other way. He starts off as, you know, kind of a jerk at a, a little 
Asperger's y. He's uh, not the most uh, likable of characters. Right. And then you and uh, and James Hunt kind you of grow to grow have that begrudging really. respect over exactly. the course of the film. Yeah, that's 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 well put. That definitely is there in the movie. Uh, and I don't. I'm getting back to the Ron Howard thing. It's funny because I really don't know how how to define one. And I would love to read a really smart essay on that question. Is how how would you define it? And I think you'd have to go back and look at all of them and and try to find some some stuff. It would be I think it would be a fruitful thing because he has made a lot of good movies. He has just but, not distinctive I mean, yeah, ones. Yeah. What not are personal the ones. what are the qualities that tie together at Apollo 13, an Ed TV, you know? The yeah. missing, the missing, yeah, the, know, the dilemma. Didn't he do that one with the like, Da Vinci Code? Yeah, I yeah. don't know. It, it, there, I mean, there's, there are yeah. a lot of sort of characters who are sort of like the best in their fields in those movies. You know, like the best astronauts, the best race car drivers, the best, uh, the mermaid. Uh, I don't maybe not Splash, <laughs> but like the best mathematician. That this and that and that. But again, there's it's hard to it's really hard to define. And I, I would love to find someone who has a, a grand unified theory of Ron Howard. I would love to hear that. Uh, but what's interesting is as much as I would have a hard time sort of defining them, I feel like if you put this movie in front of me, I don't think I would guess Ron Howard directed it. And mm. I don't mean that necessarily as a knock. I, I mean it partly as – yeah, it gets to that idea of he makes a a little bit more of a – like a stodgier kind of a movie or a little bit yeah. more prestige Like I know prestige-y this movie – in a bad way. Yes. Yes. Yeah, like a movie that feels like it's like it's supposed to be important, not just good. Like he's a- he's aiming for weight and you know gravity. And this movie, I really didn't get that. It's light on its feet, even though it could have gone that way. And it's funny because this movie didn't really get any sort of awards traction, even though it was released sort of at the time of year where they're hoping it would. And it, it didn't really get that. And it's funny because it's the movie almost to me deserves that sort of attention more than some of his other yeah. Oscar-y uh, movies. Cinderella Man, Beautiful yeah. Mind, all of these things which have like a very like this patina of greatness or importance to them, right? And, and this kind movie... of lean very heavily into like the struggle and then the kind of overcoming and then yeah. happily ever after that not isn't necessarily even there in the actual storyline, right? Yeah, that they're manipulated into into that mold. And this movie. It really is. It's light on its feet, and it's it's just dominated by these two very charismatic performances. And I don't know. You, I think you even mentioned how it moves so quickly. It's very well paced, and I think very well edited. The editing in this movie is fantastic, and it feels also, I thought, like the work of a of a younger guy. You know, Ron Howard's not that old, but just the the lightness of the camera, where the camera is all over these these um these formula 1 cars they're inside these nooks and crannies and under and over and there's a real sensory uh, you know aspect of it just from like the close-ups of eyes or yeah. like of of manipulating the gears or yeah, all of that or the it, wheels you know like you know just the way that it's put together shot and assembled to me it it felt like uh, i don't know the work of a of a younger sort of hipper guy actually not to i feel like i don't i don't want to insult ron howard because i think he is a good director he is but that's it he's like a completely solid director of like fa- you know like usually very middle successful brow. middle brow fair exactly yeah. and this you know while i don't think it's an experimental film by no. any means it's like it's a remarkably good uh, a studio film yes, in that way. Exactly, uh, that's a good way of putting yeah. it. Yeah, and I I liked that it allowed for complication in its two main main characters. That it allowed them to grow increasingly complicated as right. they went along. Well, uh, again, it's like gets back to that thing I talked about earlier, where they're in this case they're sort of both 
not so much good guys or bad guys, but they're rivals. And we don't really know who we'd want to win. And it's probably beneficial to me that I didn't know the story at all. And I didn't know where it was going to go. So that the the ending of it was kind of surprising to me. I did think in some ways the film was hampered by reality. Like the ending is not as dramatic as a potentially like in a movie, like in in the quote unquote Ron Howard movie version of this like the the final race would have been a lot more dramatic than it was which i almost to is to the movie's credit i thought like i liked the fact that it it, it surprised me with a non hollywoody hollywoody uh, i just made up a word uh ending you know that that's not exactly what you would expect it's not the warrior thing where it all comes down to this i guess it does but it it's a surprise the the, the way it goes yeah i i it was definitely it didn't feel so mangled into your con- conventional arc into right. a conventional ending right and i like that and i love the way that last race is shot because it's raining and it's yes. just it's really incredibly uh in general uh the c- cinematographer is uh anthony dodd mantle great oh, cinematographer so, so good and just like even the colors are so rich in a way that recall like the past a mm-hmm. bit you know or like just the way that you would see like i don't know older film stock or something but uh, but there are like very vivid as well. It manages to convey an era while also just seeming so alive. Yeah, uh, and and the, some of those scenes, like it doesn't always, you know, also to its credit, it doesn't it doesn't uh, overstay with all of the races. It allows a lot of the races as they progress to kind of be told in like a, a scene or a montage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that when it does stop at the rate like a race. It portrays it very, it, it like in a very memorable way that I, I thought was really well handled. Yeah, I agree. What did you think of the whole idea of racing and like being close to death as as a part of this, and that as like how it played in both of their lives? Uh, it, it wasn't uh, the an idea that resonated particularly strongly with me. Um, I feel like the most interesting parts of it was the rivalry, was the the battle between the two of them. And again, that structure where we don't really know who we're going to want to win. Um, and so we're almost like we're extra suspenseful. We're more into the film because we're not sure. Uh, I, I, I Did you ever wonder as you were watching it, like – if it would, if the movie would have been better, again, this it's based on a true story. It's this these guys who really existed who had this competition. But I thought, what if the movie could have been more fictionalized? Like, get rid of the names and just loosely based on this concept. And then they could have also been like lovers or something, <laughs> because there's a bit of like a bromantic or sort of homoerotic tension between them. I thought where it's not sexual, but they are so like obsessed with each other, yeah, and driven to be the best, but also so sort of like drawn to each other. That, you know, they both have, like, uh, relationships uh, with women that are sort of portrayed in a fair amount of the film. I actually thought were probably the weakest parts of the film to a large extent, particularly the Nikki Lauda's wife, who I found I I thought was really sort of given the short shrift in terms of that relationship. She's on screen a lot, but she never really gets to say or do anything. I mean, she kind of gets stuck in the role of staring worriedly at the television. Exactly. Yes. Or in the pit and she's staring at him and. You know, there's this big dramatic moment near the end of the film where he makes a big decision, a huge decision, and comes off the track and looks at his wife, and they don't even speak. They just, and it's, even when they're like, he's made potentially one of the biggest decisions of his life, he, they don't even exchange a, a conversation. I, they might embrace, maybe. I don't even know if they'd even hug. I'm it's not like, sure if they did. But I it's think just she like, just looked 
thrilled as he comes off and then uh, i don't I even know if she was that excited i mean no she does there is like that's the acknowledgement you get but it's like it's not you know i, I thought i thought that embrace. that relationship i thought was really the one major sort of like weak point if i could uh, identify one in the film that i thought was seriously in needing of a little bit of uh reconfiguring but just i'm just imagining like what if we could play this movie where they were like to strip you know, that part away. Yeah, and get rid of James Hunt and Nikki Lauda and make them Rob and Michael, two race car drivers who are also like, you know, like, th- I think the, that movie would be fantastic. <laughs> it because, would be definitely very interesting. Because, yeah. there's so, but the, because there's so much tension between these guys already. It's yeah. almost like they, it, it's, it's just like they almost want to go that way. I think that's, you know, what we were talking about before in just terms of talking about rivalry movies where you have... I feel like that's one of the prob- like the things that makes it difficult to have a movie about an intense rivalry and then have a love story on the side. Yes. Because that will always pale in comparison yes. to this intense, you know, professional rivalry or whatever you have it's going on. And I think to some degree that's what they're getting at in the movie is that right. they're this these men's relationship was arguably more powerful than their relationship with their respective others, you know, and they certainly were in some cases more long-lasting, right? But at yeah. the same time, you know, uh, I can't. I, I have to admit, I was <laughs> be, sitting there yeah. dreaming of that movie, and going, "That would be a good it movie." I mean, they're they're a part towards the end where they basically acknowledge each other as they're waiting to start the last race is like a really powerful moment. Yes, they, it's like a it's like a goosebump moment. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and then they got out of their cars and they yeah. took off their schmatas and they made out. No, yeah. Okay, that in, a, in an homage to Talladega Nights. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I I have to say though, I watched, I rewatched Talladega Nights after I saw this, so that wasn't weighing on my mind. Yeah. Although, <laughs> you make an excellent point. Is there anything else we want to uh, mention about about Rush? I think we've covered quite a bit of yeah, it. Like I, again, the big thing to me that I didn't really care for was was the the relationship with the wives, but particularly with Nikki Lauda's home life i just thought that i mean the way it began that that sort of that relationship began i thought was interesting but i just as i think you said it very well that by a certain point of the movie she just becomes this character whose only role in the film is to stand uh in front of a television or on the side of the track looking worried and she doesn't even get to speak i mean she has just no character whatsoever she's just this sad wistful expression i thought that was frustrating is there i mean is there anything i think no i i mean i guess i would just say otherwise that I, I thought that it did a good job of portraying the races, which are not necessarily easy to make look exciting and cinematic, right. especially given that they can be like, I don't know how many laps, there, you yeah, know, hundreds of laps. Hundreds I of was laps. thinking so that like, too. It, you know, it, it, but I, they made them look effectively very exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought that was well done. And it did remind me actually of the, the documentary Senna, which yes. is about a uh, real uh, famous, film. yes, Formula One racing driver Formula who died yeah. uh, at the age of 34, um, which has footage that's actually like with cameras on the uh, the cars and right. things like that. that POV stuff. Yeah, that's that amazing. gives a really the same kind of feel of just like the intensity and also how little you have protecting you mm-hmm. in like the speed that you're going. Yeah. Um, but I thought it, it it did a great job of that, largely by focusing on those little details and kind of bringing things to the road level. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was well done. Yeah. It was surprising that it received kind of as little traction as it I did. know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm not shocked, like we said, about the Oscar traction thing, but you would think this would have been a bigger hit. It just it's like an inter- it's a it's, fun movie. I wonder if it's that aspect, though. It doesn't fit as easily into the right. box of like. You know, he's fighting for to feed his family. Right. And it's like also Formula One, which is right. not which, a big sport in America. Right. And is a, probably a tougher sell than like and it's NASCAR. About, yeah. And it's about, a, you know, an Englishman versus an Austrian, you know, maybe True. it's not, you know, an American 
underdog story. Right. So. And again, that you're right. That's another way in which it's not like that Ron Howard prestige thing is that it doesn't have that hook for the audience necessarily. But was, I liked it. It's a good I movie. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Good, good pick it's, by it's, the uh, it's, listeners. It's worth, it's worth checking out if you yeah. have not seen it. Uh, it's available for rent on iTunes. Well, that brings us to our Behind the Eight Ball section in which we present to you three films or TV shows that are news streaming, two listener recommendations, and one pick chosen from our My Lists. Matt, you're going first. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Okay, three new picks. Okay, our first pick is a really new film. It just played on ESPN, I think, and it's now available on Netflix. This is one we both liked and we're willing to uh, recommend here. It's <laughs> called The Price of Gold or 30 for 30, The Price of Gold. Directed by Nanette uh, Burstein. And uh, well-timed to the Sochi Games, which are going on as we speak. It's the uh, new sports documentary about one of the most infamous events in Olympic history. The assault on figure skater Nancy Kerrigan. And the apparent involvement in some way by her rival. Her rival. It's a rivalry movie. It is a rivalry movie. And her teammate Tanya Harding, who eventually pled guilty to a charge of hindering prosecution. But the real question is, like, how much did she really know? Did she know in advance? Did she help plan out this attack? Or did she really just find out about it afterwards? And I think the movie does an excellent job of sort of looking at the events fairly and giving her her say. Tanya Harding is interviewed at length in the movie. Nancy Kerrigan is not, uh, although like her husband is and some of her friends are. Nancy Kerrigan, um, she, she's, she's involved in a different to NBC's yeah. documentary on the right. topic and is also a commentator for right. I think, the Olympics. So for yeah, them. so she's so, so it she's was a deal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But uh, even without her, I think it's a pretty uh, fair movie, and it's interesting to see her tanya harding speak defend herself and then be immediately contradicted in some cases by some of the other witnesses and experts and stuff but it also shows you that you know this the world of figure skating is not always a, a fair place you know and and the, that that she really didn't have a place in it i There's think it's a lot very about image and class yes. that are, that's very image and class and yeah it's she's she she didn't fit the mold of the olympic figure skater and that sort of the ice princess the ice princess exactly it's a very interesting film if you know the story if you don't know the story worth checking out that's 30 for 30 the price of gold on netflix and uh next remember allison last episode when i said that even if it didn't win i was going to watch the lone ranger yes well guess what i watched the lone ranger <laughs> and i liked it and i would recommend it it's now available on itunes amazon and google play and uh it's it's not a masterpiece i think rush is a better film and it's definitely uh, very dark in some places uh particularly uh, infamously when the villain played by William Fichtner, like, eats the heart of one of the characters, kind of on camera. Uh, I think the framing story of the movie, though, which is about Johnny Depp's Tonto as an old man trying and, and failing, basically, to communicate with this little boy who wants to hear the great legend of the Lone Ranger, I think that structure makes the movie about this, this sort of tension, the, the difficulty of making a wholesome family film at a darker and more cynical time. And so the tone is uneven, but I think it, it kind of works. And the action scenes are really fantastic. So not a great movie, but worth a watch. Maybe not worth more than one watch, but worth a single watch anyway. So that's The Lone Ranger, and it's available for rental on a bunch of places. And finally, uh, speaking of uh, Westerns, how about one of the greats of all time, A Fistful of do uh, Dollars uh, from 1964, directed by Sergio Leone. It's also now available on Netflix and I found this fascinating. I did not know this, Allison. Clint Eastwood, who, of course, plays the man with no name, who has a name in the movie, but whatever. He plays the famous, iconic character, the, the gunslinger at the center of it. He was not the first choice for this role. He wasn't even close to the first choice for this role. Sergio Leone had a list 
longer than my arm of actors he wanted. Henry Fonda, James Coburn, Charles Bronson, Richard Harrison, on and on and on. He finally settled on Clint Eastwood. Can you imagine <laughs> what our world would be like if Henry Fonda had played the man with no name? I Hard mean, he, he later made Once Upon a Time in uh, in the West, but just it's fascinating. But anyway, if you've never seen it, it you know, the famous uh, classic spaghetti western really helped launch that genre internationally. Fabulous film. And worth a watch. So Fistful of Dollars uh, streaming on Netflix. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right. My first is from Matt in New Hampshire. He says, recently I finished The Story of Film and Odyssey, a 15-part TV documentary from Mark Cousins. The documentary covers with a lot of detail the history of film from its invention in the late 19th century through just a few years ago. The most recent film featured is inception it's a great little film course because it covers obscure films in areas of the world that don't get a lot of coverage as well as the obligatory classics of films and filmmakers it can be a little dry as cousin goes into the technical details of how films succeed in provoking a response but it's a must watch for any cinephile from the novice to the seasoned vet looking for something new to fill their my list or dvd cues keep up the great work that was from matt in new hampshire we also had that same series recommended to us by Ben in Austin, Texas. The same two-week span. So that's a story of film and Odyssey, and that is streaming on Netflix. And one more recommendation here. This one is from listener Joe Bass. He says, like many good amateur cinephiles, I have packed my Hulu queue with good intentions from the Criterion Collection. I have actually watched very few, but I did finally sit down to watch Shock Corridor and What a Movie. It's so refreshing to have such a a revered, important movie also be so pulpy when a reporter desperate for a Pulitzer commits himself to a mental hospital to uncover a murder mystery. He encounters a series of men driven insane by the American turmoil of the mid-20th century. It's the very best of noir and the very best of the 60s, all in one pulpy package from director Samuel Fuller. Love the show. Thank you for all the recommendations. And that's a Shock Corridor that is streaming on Hulu Plus. And that is a very good film. If you haven't seen it, definitely recommended by me as well. All right. And one from your My List. My List. You gave me number 52, which this time is Le Professionnel, a.k.a. The Professionnel. It's a, it's a some kind of crime thriller starring Jean-Paul Belmondo. The description from Netflix says, charged with assassinating an African despot French spy Joss Beaumont seeks vengeance after his government double-crosses him. Imprisoned in Africa for two years, the angry Beaumont makes a bold escape and decides to complete his mission. I have no idea how I found this movie and how it wound up on my my list, but there it was, Le Professionnel, uh, streaming on Netflix. Allison, are you ready for your countdown of movies? Yes, I am. All right, let's start with three new titles. Okay, first up is a film that's just been added to Hulu. It is Jack Goes Boating, which is Philip Seymour Hoffman's directorial debut and sadly now his lone film as a director. Um, Still both very sad about what happened to him. Mm. Uh, But this is based on Robert Glaudini's play, the same name, and carried over much of the same cast as when the play premiered at the public theater, you know, Hoffman being very active on stage as well as in film. Uh, He stars in the film as Jack, who is a shy limo driver whose co-worker and his co-worker's wife, who are played by John Ortiz and Daphne Rubin Vega, set him up with one of his wife's co-workers, played by Amy Ryan. So a great cast. It uh, does feel a bit like a it feels like a play 
that was brought kind of not always perfectly to screen. It, it doesn't always feel, it feels a little claustrophobic sometimes, but it has some very nice performances uh, from all of the actors. And I think the relationship between the the shy Jack and, uh, and Amy Ryan's character, who also has a certain amount of intimacy issues, is really well handled. So that's Jack Goes Boating. It is available on Hulu. New to Fandor is Sun Don't Shine. This is the directorial debut of Amy Simetz, who is a producer and actress. You may know her from the last season of The Killing or from her role in Upstream Color, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, many other indies she's worked on. Uh, The film stars Kentucker Audley and Caitlin Scheel, and it's like a Florida noir, I've heard it described. Um, And they are driving along the Gulf Coast with very good reason to hope not to be stopped by the cops. So that is Sundown Shine. It is on Fandor. And finally, this past week, Amazon unveiled its new pilots. You know, it's been doing this thing where for its original programming, they'll put up the pilot episodes of like many possible shows, Mm -hmm. then you can watch them for free. You don't need an Amazon prime account Nice, and they collect your data and feedback. And they use that to decide which they will green light to series. They're very new to the original series. They send their drones to come look at you. Yeah. And they're like, are you looking like you're enjoying this? Yes. Then they judge it, you know, on one to five stars. The drones. Do. The drones. Do. You don't get any say yourself. <laughs> um, but you know, like last year, this led to the two series, Alpha House with John Goodman mm-hmm. and Betas. Neither of which really got talked about very much. No. This year, it, they seem poised to be much more. And I would recommend one in particular. Okay. Transparent. It's uh, directed by Jill, Sol- created, created by Jill Soloway, who directed the film Afternoon Delight, which was at Sundance last year mm-hmm. with Catherine Hahn and Juno Temple. Uh, this one, it's about a family in L.A. There's a vague, uh, Soloway worked on Six Feet Under, and there's a touch okay. of like Six Feet Under to this, I would mm-hmm. say, just in terms of the feel. But it stars Gabby Hoffman and Jeffrey Tambor and Jay Duplass, not Mark Duplass, ah. uh, in an interesting twist. And it, I don't want to give go into the plot. It's a half-hour comedy. Um, and kind of the, the basically the premise isn't revealed till I'd say like two thirds of the way through, but it's very smartly written and just has such great performances. It feels very little like typical television in a way that's very exciting and there were some other pilots up there including the after which is the first series potential series from chris carter the creator of x files um, oh. i think it's kind of horrible but uh it is on there if you are curious to look so uh that's transparent it is available for free on amazon okay how about two listener recommendations all right first one is from franco who writes i recently saw the jerk for the first time and not only did it meet whatever expectations the term comedy classic has but in a lot of ways i found myself thinking it is underrated today mm. people should still be talking about this film at least once a week Whoa. Scene after scene, it had me laughing out loud, and I kept waiting for it to lose steam. Like so many million jokes a minute films, it never did. Sure, the film's episodic and has a paper-thin story. Sure, it puts all its chips in one pile, betting that producing comedy gold will be able to sustain the momentum. That's a dangerous gamble, but Martin's fearless performance kept me in awe of his commitment to the craft. It's the kind of four-quadrant comedy that I could easily watch with my mother or nephew. That is available for rent on Amazon. And then our second recommendation is from Adam. 
He writes, I recommend The Time That Remains, currently streaming on Netflix. It is an Israeli autobiographical film by director, e- by director Elia Suleiman, who also plays himself in the film, that explores coping with tragedy through black comedy, which is the, really the only way you should cope with tragedy. The film follows a family over 50 years in the Palestine-Israel area and explores various events that are often too chaotic to comprehend. The film faces loss in many forms, but never wallows in sadness, rather confronts it through absurdist comedy as Suleiman seeks to understand some of the grander conflicts that face his culture. The film is a must for fans of Wes Anderson and Richard Ayoade, as stylistically it is reminiscent of them. So that is streaming on Netflix. Okay, and how about one random film from your my list? You gave me number three, which is Toad Road. This is an uh, kind of like artier 2012 indie horror film. That combines a story of drug addiction in which uh, a guy kind of befriends this girl who is spiraling into heavier drug use with one about a real urban legend uh, about this area, wooded area in Pennsylvania, where there are supposedly seven gates that you can go through on this path. And if you go through all seven, you can you go to hell. You find the gate to hell uh, in a kind of creepy touch and un- like you know tragic touch. The lead actress actually died of a drug overdose herself Whoa. shortly after the film premiered. Um, so it's uh, kind of sad to think about, but mm. uh, is Toad Road, and it is on Netflix. Okay, so let's uh, let's get to our listeners' choice options for our next episode. We thought it's been a while since we've done a a TV based episode, so let's give you three TV show options. There's some good ones to choose from this time, so that's what we're gonna do. Our first uh, choice is streaming on Netflix starting on February 14th. And it is the second season of House of Cards, created by Bo Willimon. It's the political drama about the inner workings of the U.S. government, starring Kevin Spacey as a power-hungry congressman. We actually discussed season one of House of Cards at our Film Spotting SVU live show last year. If you haven't heard that episode, you can find it at uh, filmspottingsvu.com or you can find it on iTunes. So this would be a continuation of our discussion of the show, which could, I think, potentially be a lot of fun. I mean, we... We've uh, we we talked about season one. We could compare season two. That would be great. Allison, you said you've already seen the first couple of episodes. You I said have. they're they're good. They're very surprising. You said it becomes a what was it? Zombie apocalypse. It was. I, it was an unexpected choice, but I thought you know it was good to shake it up. For yeah, season two. mix it up, right? Like DC. It's still it's still of course like largely a DC drama, but yes. with zombies. I, I, how is Kevin Spacey's southern accent with the zombie talking? Like the brains y'all he's such a fine actor i feel like if anyone can pull off while talking to the camera and eating brains it's (laughs) him so i i feel like it's just you know just showcases his talents he can really do it all so that's house of cards season two and that's uh uh, that's going to be available on netflix starting on february 14th just in time for valentine's day what's more romantic than house of cards i actually think that's probably what my wife and i will be doing (laughs) on valentine's day evening uh because we're looking forward actually to uh, watching the second season we've been waiting for it so that's option one what's option two else option two we're going all tv i think you mentioned that yes i did yes so uh this is it's the americans season one uh that's currently available for streaming on amazon prime this is the fx series that was created by joe weisberg who is actually a former CIA agent. Um, And it is about a couple in the 80s, in the D.C. area, again. There's no getting away from that. Uh, But they are actually Soviet agents. They're KGB agents who have been put in deep cover, and they are living as an American married couple, as uh, Elizabeth and Philip Jennings, played by Carrie Russell and Matthew Rees. They have two children who have no idea what their parents uh, have been up to. 
And it is a spy story, but it's also kind of a story about how after years of an arranged marriage, their marriage is becoming real, like they actually are falling in love. And so it's, uh, it's a very interesting metaphor for marriage and for the immigrant experience by way of a spy story. If you are interested in watching that with us, uh, the season two is premiering on February 26th. So that'll give you a chance to be all caught up before the new season starts. Nice. Option three is another television series available on Netflix, and it's season one of Bates Motel, developed by Carlton Cuse, Carrie Aaron, and Anthony Cipriano, and based, of course, on the classic Alfred Hitchcock movie and also the Robert Block novel. And it's sort of a prequel TV series to Psycho. It's about the young Norman Bates and his mother while she's still alive. Uh, in the years prior to Psycho, the mom is played by the great Vera Farmiga, and Norman is Freddie Highmore. I haven't seen the show at all, but obviously the psycho element has me very intrigued. I should point out, it's set in the present day, though. Which set, puts... So it's not set in 1955. Right. It's set in 2013. Exactly, which puts a kind of interesting spin on It's like a, an impossible prequel right. in that way, right? which is interesting. And you've watched the whole thing, some of it? I've watched most of the first season. Okay. Yes. And you said it, it was sort of interesting and also really trashy? Yeah, it's both at the same time. I mean, that sounds good to me. I'm up for interesting <laughs> trash any day of the week. So, uh, yeah, so that's option three. Bates Motel, season one, streaming now on Netflix. So which TV series should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, February 17th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the TV series and then the season of the TV series. Yep. And then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Tuesday, February 25th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive and a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Film Spotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. And you can listen to more of Vince's work at... VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the TV review you pick. In the meantime, though, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. And don't forget, keep sending your streaming suggestions so we can read them on the show. The uh, email address one more time is svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And for Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. 